0: Right now, uh, we're in a series called Gospel Rhythm, studying the Psalms, and we're going to look at Psalm 103 today. Uh, let's read it together. It's, it's rather lengthy. I'm going to be reading it to you. And if you've got a Bible, turn there. If not, it's found on the screen and in your bulletin as well. This is a Psalm of David. Uh, he wrote many of the Psalms, about half, and this is a Psalm of praise that he wrote. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known His ways to Moses, His acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will He keep His anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth... So great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As a father shows compassion for his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it and it is gone. And its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting Upon those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. This is the word of the Lord. When you're reading any passage in the Bible, one of the key things in studying it is to think and hear uh, phrases that have been repeated. And there's two or three phrases in there that were repeated often. You heard the steadfast love of the Lord repeated over and over and over. Now, that phrase, steadfast love of the Lord, literally means the covenantal love of God, that God set his covenant of grace upon a people, the people of Israel, and he made them go from being a lost people to being a people that were adopted into his grace, his mercy, and his love. So there is this covenant of grace that God had established with his people, and he's reminding them of his steadfast love towards his children. Beautiful, beautiful thing. Many of the psalms are psalms of deep autobiographical information. This one is not so much. There isn't a lot of autobiographical detail about David, but it's more a general psalm of praise and one to call us towards worship (laughs) and praise. And this morning, what I want us to see is this. We're going to talk about blessing first, and then next from the passage, this main concept of blessing through remembering. This is what David is talking about in the first half of the psalm. Blessing through the means of remembering the incredible benefits that our Lord has and is and is doing for us. First, this idea of blessing. The term blessing is an interesting term, and it's got a lot of different meanings, if you think about it. Uh, It means a prayer for us, right? So, will you say the blessing? Um, It can mean to set something apart as holy— This water is blessed. This is holy water. This land is holy land, right? It's it's the blessed. It's been set apart in some distinct way. To do some good thing to some person, right, is is to be a blessing to them. I want to bless you with this gift. When we worship, we're coming here to bless the name of the Lord, as as David is saying here. It's to confer uh, some sort of attribute or prosperity or giftedness towards someone, like that person is blessed with athleticism. So a lot of, different, lot of different ways that this word blessed is used. If you grew up in the South at all, you know that there's a very unique way that the word blessed is used. And it's like this. It says like, bless your heart. Bless his heart. Bless your heart. <laughs> and basically, if you're not from the South, let me tell you what that means. Bless your heart, that means you're an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> this week I read an article in the New York Times by an author named Kate Bowler. She just wrote this article called Death, the Prosperity, Gospel, and Me. Um, She's a religious professor at the university, at Duke University. And it was an amazing article. I, I commend it to you. And she said this, When Americans boast on Twitter about how well they're doing on Thanksgiving, hashtag blessed is the standard hashtag. It's the main thing. It is the humble brag of stars, she says. Hashtag blessed is the only Caption suitable for viral images of alpine vacations and family family yachting and barely there bikinis. It says, I totally get it. I'm down to earth enough to know that this is crazy, but it also says, God gave this to me. Adorable shrug, don't blame me. I'm blessed. (laughs) Blessed is a loaded term because it blurs the distinction, she writes, between two different ideas and categories, gift and reward. It can be a term of pure gratitude. Thank you, God. I could not have secured this for myself. But it can also imply that it was deserved somewhat. Like, thank you, me, for being the kind of person who gets it right. I'm blessed. Now, when Christians say that they're blessed, what we ordinarily mean and what we should mean is this, that every single thing you and I enjoy, every good gift, every good thing in our life, God is good all the time, is a gift from God. And the more you grow in the understanding of who God is and his character, his being, and, and so forth, and then the more you get to know who you are as a human being, what you realize is literally everything you have in life is a gift from God. Every good thing. And so we who, who follow Jesus and call ourselves Christians are blessed, and it's not because we deserve any blessing. In fact, quite the opposite. In fact, we don't get what we deserve, but instead we get grace, we get mercy, and therefore we're blessed right? That should be true of us who follow Jesus. We're a blessed people, not because we are the beloved and, and there's all this goodness inside of us, but in spite of ourselves even, we are blessed because of God's gracious act of his steadfast love towards his children. Again, right? You with me? That's true. Now in this instance though, we're not saying, you're talking about the blessings God has conferred upon us by his grace and his mercy. Instead, what, what David is talking about is blessing the Lord. But these things go directly together. And he says, until you realize how much you're blessed, you won't properly bless the Lord. And that's really what we're going to be talking about today is remembering the blessings of the Lord. And when you are remembering, counting your blessings of who God is and what he's done for you, you then in turn bless him. You then in turn worship him. Right out of the gate in verse one, David says this, Bless the Lord, O my soul. All that is within me, Bless his holy name, verse 1. And so basically what he's saying, you see a seriousness in David's life and heart about worship. And he's saying, I am called, I have a duty, I have an obligation before God to worship him, to bless him, and I am calling myself to bless him with all of my being, my mind, my heart, my will, my actions. Bless the Lord, all that is within me, bless his holy name. We prepare ourselves, if you think about it, for everything that's important to us, especially if some big event is coming up. Don't you prepare? I mean, don't you? Okay, okay. So you do. When you have a big event coming up, you get ready for it. Like if you're going to give a a talk at work or if you've got some big stressful project that's due or in school you've got to give some presentation or whatever, you get ready. You might get up extra early. You may not be able to sleep at night. You think about it, and you kind of pump yourself up for it, right? I mean, every Sunday I have, I tell people, it's like preaching is like having a final every week, right? You, you have to work all week to, to deliver this information that you've been working on. And so I get up extra early on Sunday morning. I can't just nonchalantly kind of come in here, right? It's something I have to prepare for. You're the same. And what David is saying is, in essence, with the worship of God, I have to take it so seriously. I have to call myself to it. I have to prepare myself. I have to, in essence, pump myself up. So, when you got something big going on, you may even get in front of the mirror and look at yourself and go, You can do this, right? I mean, let's do this, man. We have pump up music. We have jams, like whole playlists, right, on Spotify that you can listen to. Like when I'm taking one of my boys to a sporting event, I like, I crank up some music. And it's not classical music, right? It's classic rock. We get some, you know, it's something with a beat, like get ready, get ready to rumble. You prepare yourself. So, ask yourself, like, To take seriously the nature of worship, are you prepared? Do you prepare your heart and your mind to worship the Lord? This is what David is saying, prepare. And I love that he has a self-awareness that he's not actually there yet. I mean, I don't love that he's not there yet, but you and I are like that, honestly. When you come to church, when you get up in your day, because worship is not only what's happening right here. All of our lives are worship, every aspect. But this is a distinct time when God's people come together and worship. So I ask, do you prepare? Do you ready yourself? As David is talking about. I love that he's saying, look, I'm not quite there, but listen, oh my soul, bless his name. Soul, listen to me. You need to get ready to bless the Lord with your whole being. This is our calling. When we come together to worship, like right now, I find that at the beginning of the service, I'm not quite ready. Even though I've prepared my heart, even though I get the sermon out, I go for a long walk on Sunday mornings, read to the sermon, pray. I'm still not quite ready. I'm still thinking in my head too much about what I'm going to say and so forth. But then what I find is after I've been with you, and I've heard God's word call me to worship, and I sing these songs that are pointing me to the goodness of God, and then I hear God's word calling me to confess my sin or assuring me of of his grace and pardon. We confess our faith together. We sing again. We hear God's word preached. We partake of the Lord's Supper together. Usually by then, I have remembered some good things about God and then I am moved to worship that now, by the time I'm leaving this place, I am moved to worship and I'm hoping that's true of you. But David takes it seriously. The importance of remembering He says in verse one, bless the Lord, O my soul. All that is within me, bless his holy name. And then in verse two, he says, forget not the Lord's benefits. And then he goes on to list these various benefits. David is showing us that if if we're lacking a sense of awe and wonder, if you're in a place in your life right this minute, I just want you to be honest with yourself. Are you really worshiping the Lord right now in this season of life? I'm not talking about right this minute. I'm talking about in general, is your heart inclined to worship God, to bless his name? If it is not, and chances are good, it's not. What David would say in this passage is, you are failing to remember the goodness of God. He, we fail to bless the Lord because we forget his benefits. This is what this passage is saying. We fail to worship him. We fail to bless him when we forget his benefits. It says in Psalm 103, uh, verse two, bless the Lord, O my soul, forget not all his benefits. Whenever we bestow blessing on anything, any person, any place, any idea, any observation, like my wife routinely will call me out in the backyard and say, look at that. She's talking about the Arizona sunset. We've been living here for 12 years and it's like, it's like the first time she's ever seen it. Get out here and look at this. And what is she doing? She's seeing the beauty in God's creation and it's calling her to bless that beauty. Look at that. That's amazing. We do the same whenever we find something beautiful, some idea or someone we love. I love you. You're amazing. You're brilliant. You're intelligent. That's gorgeous. That's awesome. And what we must remember is the goodness of God in order to bless his name. And so... When our hearts are not blessing the Lord, you've forgotten. You're not remembering how good God is and all of his benefits. When I counsel couples who are stuck in in marriage, they're not stuck in marriage, but they're stuck in their marriage, is, you know, five, seven, ten years in, now they've got little kids, they're in my office and they're saying, We're really struggling and I kind of know what's happened usually, and it doesn't matter the particular instance of what they've said or what they've done. Usually it's the same thing, not always, but usually they have forgotten all the benefits that they have for one another. <laughs> now, and then, so what I do, generally speaking, so no, if you come talk to me, this is, this is what's going to happen. Like, I'm going I'm to ask you, how did you meet? Tell me the story. When did you meet? tell me what was it like, where were you, you know, what was it like, what was going on, and then it's amazing how people's faces light up when they begin to tell the story of when they met their spouse. Even if they're currently in stress, they begin to smile and talk about we were doing this or whatever, and they tell the story of how they met, and then I ask like, why did you marry this person? What did you love about her? They go on to tell the story. She was this. She was beautiful. She was kind. She was da-da-da. He was whatever. And, like, and then so they tell the story, and in telling the story, what they're doing is they're remembering the benefits of why they got married. And I said, you've forgotten all the benefits. Real life has intruded. Stress, work, finances, kids. And you're forgetting how good this person is. You, you married them for a reason, right? You stood before God and witnesses and covenanted your life together for a good cause. You don't get married because, you know, you find that other person to be horrible. You've forgotten the benefits. The same is true for us when we forget to bless the Lord. Now, verse 1 and 2, bless the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. If you've got your Bible or the bulletin, will you please look at this passage? Look at it. Like, I don't want to see your face. Look down. <laughs> It says in verses one and two, bless the Lord, oh my soul. And I want you, this is like some Bible study method. I want you to see, this is how we study the Bible. First of all, it says in verses one through two, bless the Lord and forget not all his benefits. You know what's so cool about David? He then tells us a bunch of benefits. And the first one he shows us, if you're looking at your passage in verse three is what? He forgives all your iniquities. That word iniquities is another Bible word for sin transgressions, iniquity, sin, same thing. He forgives how much of it? All of it. What's next? The first thing, a benefit, all these benefits. The next benefit is this, he heals all your diseases. Verse three, four, he redeems your life from the pit. Next bullet point, he redeems, you. the pit means the grave, he redeems it. That means to purchase out, to buy out, You're in slavery in essence. To to redeem someone in that culture was to take them out of slavery and a a family member or somebody else could come along and pay a price to redeem you or purchase you out of slavery. You have been bought out of death, out of the pit. He crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. The king of the universe in, in, in putting his steadfast love on you gives you a crown. A crown of his steadfast love. Unbelievable. Psalm 103, verse 13, same passage there. It says, A father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Think about how improbable that is. That the God who created the sunset you enjoy and the God who created all that is wants to set a crown of his steadfast love upon you and declare that you're his child, his daughter, his son. Psalm 103, 13, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Satisfies you. In verse 5, it says this, Another benefit. He satisfied you so that your youth is renewed like the eagle's youth or power. My, one of my favorite movies, Nacho Libre. You get eagle powers <laughs> in the gospel. Like you get true eagle powers. I mean, this is what it's saying. like re, This powerful, powerful thing. And finally, verse 6. He works justice for all the oppressed. We fail to bless the Lord when we forget his benefits. And these benefits, as you're reading them, are so extreme, so incredible. He forgives all your iniquity. He heals all your diseases. He redeems your life from the pit. He crowns you with steadfast love and righteousness. He satisfies you so that your youth is fully renewed. You older folks, how good news is that? My mother and father-in-law are in town, and my mother-in-law just said to me, old age is not for sissies, right? I mean, it's hard to get up. Just moving in a chair, just sitting still is painful. And so good news in in this, your youth will be renewed in justice for all the oppressed. Now, do you hear how astronomical these promises are? So much so that I think some of you are like, you know what, I don't really find much motivation in them because they're just, they are just—they seem like hyperbole. They seem ridiculous. They seem way beyond. All your diseases are healed. How come my friend is dying of cancer? All of your sins are forgiven. That seems impossible. How can all my sins be forgiven? And so you see these promises that are so grandiose and so big, and you may say, they really don't have much power or motivation for me because they're just too much. Well, the article I read from you from Kate Bowler just a minute ago from the professor from, from Duke, she actually is an interesting person. She's a religious studies professor who has made it her life's work to study the prosperity gospel within Christianity today, the prosperity gospel. And so she has been spending her life studying these churches that kind of teach what's called the prosperity gospel, which I'll explain in just a minute. But meanwhile, in the midst of it, just just in the last few weeks, she's been diagnosed with stage 4 cancer. Now, stage 4 cancer, you probably know, that pretty m- much means uh, you need to settle your things and get ready because you're probably not going to live. Now, she's relating all this. Like, I've been studying this theology that basically says, if you believe enough, if you have enough faith, you should be healed of all your diseases, just as Paul ha- or David has said here. And yet she's dying of cancer. And then she has this inner, inner, interesting I- issue with how people are relating to her regarding that. As she announces the different people groups, different friendships, friends at the, at the university, friends in the neighborhood, friends among these prosperity gospel people that she's gotten to know at various churches. Now she writes this, in the late 19th century, this prosperity gospel actually started among secular humanists that were teaching that basically if you just have good enough thoughts about the universe, good things will happen to you. Uh, Books like this, um, How to Win Friends and Influence People, that was on my parents' bookshelf growing up. I remember it. That's a direct result of this idea that started in the late 19th century called The New Thought. It's interesting how the new thought and this new perspective worked its way into all kinds of different stuff. Maybe you've heard or read the book, The Secret. It's a pretty long book, but at the end of it, the secret is this. Just think good stuff, and good stuff will happen to you. If you think bad stuff, bad energy is going to come on you. If you think good stuff, good energy is going to come on you. And the, the secret is this. Just think positively. Just be a positive person. Sounds simple enough. Bad thoughts equal debt. Bad thoughts equal disease. Bad thoughts equal all these other negative things. Good thoughts equal prosperity, health, success, and so forth. Now, enter though in the last 100 years in america mixed in with christianity is this idea of this new thought and they kind of mashed it together but in the process what they've created is something that is distinctly not christian basically this you have a man who died on a cross who then looked to all his followers and said you can't be my disciple if you don't pick up your cross and follow me and if you picked up a cross in that culture what does that means going to happen to you you're going to die you're going to suffer Jesus says, Come, follow me, serve the poor. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the humble in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed, <laughs> the whole Matthew 5 section of the Beatitudes is all about, Blessed are those who I can identify with the oppressed, the least, the lost, the poor. And then this prosperity comes along. Gospel saying this if you just have enough faith, you should never get sick. You should never have a problem, that you should be fabulously wealthy and successful and so forth. And it is a, it's a distortion. It's a distortion of what Jesus taught. I was in a class once in seminary. One of the professor's sons was killed in an automobile accident. or in a, An automobile struck him as he was driving his motorcycle. And somebody rushed into our classroom to announce to us what had just happened. It literally had just happened like an hour before. And this young man, one of my fellow students, stood up and addressed the classroom and said, who among us believes this, this person can live? his body was literally torn in two. And he was chiding us and calling us. Who believes? Who has enough faith that this man can be alive right now? We don't have to wait for the resurrection right now. So there's somebody that's taking David's promises seriously, perhaps, but in another way, taking them all wrong. This lady, Kate Bowler, who wrote this article diagnosed with, with cancer is saying this, Everyone that keeps coming up to her and asking her about her cancer, she says, no matter whether they're a total scientist like her professor friends, a total hippie like some of her church friends and neighbor friends, or some of her prosperity gospel friends, they all have the same uh, idea in mind as they're asking questions. And it's this How can I control my life in such a way that I don't get what you have? Can you admit that you do this too? Like when somebody's really sick, you know what I do? I'll go like, so what were your symptoms? Like, you know, well when did this start? You know, and then I want to get online and you know because I'm weird. But uh, it's like that's what you do, and that's what her research friends, her her uh, uh, professor friends were doing. They're basically saying, oh, I can out science this. I want to figure out what happened to you. I want to figure out what you did, and I want to catch it early. I want to figure out what your genetics are. I'm going to get on top of this. I will out science my cancer. And then her hippie friends came along began to ask about her diet and say, you know, like, well, what were you eating and so forth, and then offering all kinds of different salads and drinks and potions to say, like, this will heal you if you eat it. But they, in turn, were saying, I can eat my way out. I can nutritionally keep myself from cancer. Not true, by the way, ultimately. And then finally, her prosperity gospel friends, these people that she had met along the way, uh, were saying, I can positively declare that cancer has no power over me and even invoke the name of Jesus. But ultimately, ultimately, they're saying this, I can control this, I can manage this. But then she very humbly writes, the most I can say about why I have cancer, medically speaking, is that bodies are delicate and prone to error. But as a Christian, she says, I can say that the kingdom of God is not yet fully here. And so in this life, we do get sick and we do die. And that is our reality. But here's the truth. The kingdom of God is not fully here yet. But what David is saying, and this is true, and I, until you understand this, you won't be able to live in light of these benefits. But the kingdom of God is coming in fullness. So the kingdom of God is, is not here yet, but it is Coming in his fullness, in its fullness. And when Jesus returns, it will come in fullness as it was demonstrated when he came the first time. If you've read the Gospels, what you see is a demonstration of the kingdom of God that's at hand. And we talk about this all the time here. Jesus came talking about the kingdom of God. That was his main message. If you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, he came forward saying basically this, the kingdom of God is at hand. I come to proclaim good news to the poor because in my presence, here is the kingdom of God. The entire Old Testament is saying, look, God is establishing a kingdom. A Messiah is coming who will usher in the kingdom. And now Jesus shows up and goes, here's the kingdom. And how do we know that? Because everywhere Jesus went, kingdom-like results took place. David says that the sick, all your diseases will be healed. When Jesus shows up, guess what? Disease does not hang around. Blind people all of a sudden can see. Why? Because there's no room for blindness in the kingdom of God. And the deaf hear. Why? Same reason. And the lame walk and evil has to flee. And all these things that are that are bad and, and are fallen are broken are being unraveled and being restored to their right place. Even a little girl who passes away and whose family is mourning. Jesus walks in, takes this little girl in his arms and says, Little daughter, get up. And she does. And he's not crazy for saying so. Why? Because where Jesus is, the kingdom was present, and all these kingdom realities start breaking out and breaking forth. And so when David says, look, here are the benefits of God in the kingdom, it's this, that there will be a time when all of our diseases will be healed, all of our iniquity will be taken care of, and all who are oppressed will receive justice. Because Christianity is not just an escape from hell card. It is the belief that ultimately a kingdom, a future kingdom will be consummated and established in the coming of Jesus Christ. And all that is wrong, all that is broken will be made new again. That's the gospel. Jesus, the king, will usher that in and he will make it so. Now David is no fool. He's not just buying into pietistic little ideas or superficial concepts. He is a realist as well. He writes in verses 15 through 17, as for man, his days are like grass. So when he's saying, look, all your diseases are healed and all this justice will happen, he understands that that is in the consummation of the coming kingdom. But here, now, for right now, he understands the reality that we live in in the shadowlands. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field for the wind passes over and it's gone. That's what's true of us now. And its place knows it no more, but the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting. And therefore, the steadfast love of the Lord is going to bring about this good news. Okay, back to the original idea. Are you failing to bless the Lord in your life? Of course you are. At some level, of course you are. Are are you blessing the Lord with all that is within you? Of course, you're not. not yet. And the result, the reason is, you're forgetting the benefits of the Lord. You're not recounting yet, fully, remembering all the goodness of God in Jesus Christ, all that He is for us now and all that He will be for us. Now, most of these promises find their consummation only in His coming kingdom, but there's one, the first one, that I want you to point you to as we close that already is true. It's completely true. It'll find its complete consummation in Jesus' return. But there's something true of you right now that's already true because of what Jesus Christ did in his life and in his death and in his resurrection. And it's this. All of your iniquities have been forgiven. Verse three. He then says in verses 10 through 12, and at this point, I want you to remember the fatherly love of God. If you're failing to bless the Lord, it's because we've forgotten the fatherly love of God. In verses 10 through 12, it says this. He does not deal with us according to as our sins deserve. Oh, thank God. How, are you aware of what you deserve? Are you aware of what you deserve? If you've forgotten, again, if you're not remembering what you deserve, which would be death, you fail to bless the Lord. He does not deal with us according to our sins by what we deserve, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is the steadfast love toward those who fear Him. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, the heavens, that's the universe, and then there's the earth. I don't know about if you've studied this cosmology much, but the universe is expanding, and It's infinite. And so what that means is God's love towards you and forgiveness of all your sins is infinite. And then it says, so far have your transgressions been removed. It's as if it's from the east from the west. That's an infinite forgiveness. You having an infinite amount of sin in your life have been the recipient by Jesus of an infinite love, an infinite mercy, an infinite grace. And this is true of you already. And if you're failing to bless the Lord, oh, you in your soul at all times, it's because in that moment, in that hour, in that day, you are not remembering the benefit of the reality that you have been forgiven an infinite debt by the infinite love of God. And it's true of you right now. Some of you, though, are living in shame and you're crushed by it. You are already forgiven. You've put your hope and your trust in Jesus Christ. You love him. You've been forgiven. You have been adopted. He he no longer counts you a sinner. Don't you know that? Are you a sinner? Of course you are. But if you're a Christian, do you know that you no longer, that's not your identity any longer? You're now the son or daughter of God in Jesus Christ. You've been adopted into his kingdom. That's That's what defines you. And yet, you're living in shame as if your sin or somebody else's sin against you is like cloaking you. It's a robe around you. Take off that robe and put on the robe of Jesus Christ, his righteousness, which now covers you in such a way that you're forgiven of all your sins. That's why Jesus Christ went to the cross, by the way. He bore your sins on the tree. We just read it from 1 Peter. Some of you live in deep shame. You keep defining yourself as a sinner or one who's been sinned against. But that's not you. You're now a child of God. And you're failing to remember the benefit of the fatherly love of God, his steadfast love towards you. Next, though, some of you are living in pride and self-righteousness. And pride is a terrifying sin. It's really the grandfather of all sins. It's the sin behind every other sin. It's the sin of autonomy. It's the sin that says, I can do all things myself. I don't need you. I don't need community. I don't need a Savior. I don't need to put my faith in anything. I can do it. And maybe you say, no, I believe in Jesus. But but you're still prideful because you've forgotten who you were, someone who has broken, fallen, and sinful, and fallen very short of the glory of God. But now that you're in Christ, you in turn are self-righteous and are treating others as if they're less than you. Like a Pharisee, and I want to warn you, Jesus said, many on that day will say, Lord, Lord, and he will say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. If you're living in pride and self-righteousness, if you're continually finding yourself judging other people, be warned. Be warned. You may not know the Lord in the way that you think you do. If you're hateful towards people, unforgiving, unloving towards people, just divisive, listen, be careful of pride and arrogance. And you're, you're failing to see who you are and what Jesus is calling you to. There's no room for arrogance and self-righteousness. Such, it's not what the kingdom of God is built on. Read Matthew 5. It's just not. It's, it's for the humble, for those who mourn. It's not for the proud. I've seen many, many churches torn apart by divisive, self-righteous people. This is not the kingdom of God. If you are pride, prideful, Self righteous, you're failing to remember the benefit and to believe that your sins have been removed and that you needed that. That without that, without the work of Jesus Christ, you would be separated from God from all of eternity. You've not yet humbled yourself to realize that it's not your own righteousness. I don't care how much theology you know or what you know or think you know, it doesn't matter. Ultimately, it was all grace by Jesus. You're blessed because of Jesus. It's not your righteousness, it's not your knowledge the way friends as we close to be moved to worship is to remember the benefits of God not the least of which is the fatherly love of God towards us in Jesus Christ let's pray father we thank you and we praise you for Jesus the great shepherd of our souls <clears throat> And though, though we, like sheep, have gone astray, that he has shepherded us back into his fold, and you have loved us so well, Father, by sending your Son, and yet we don't prepare to worship you. We we get caught up in so many other things. We bow and worship and, and bless so many other things other than you, and so we repent. We come as your children repenting this morning, saying, Lord, we have loved more th- so many things above you. We have blessed so many other people and ideas and things above you father we repent and we turn to you and we say lord you alone have the benefits that can change our hearts help our hearts to cling to all the goodness that you are father we ask in jesus good name amen